Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Ziad Ismail, who is the CPO of Convoy. Why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, thank you for having me on the podcast. Super excited to join. Yeah, my background is, if I start from the beginning, I grew up in uh, Sweden, uh, in a suburb just outside of Stockholm. Very early on, I got exposed to computers. I lived not that far from an electronics store and a mall. And so me and some of the other neighborhood kids, we would go there pretty much every day, uh, especially during the summer vacation. And they had kind of early computers, a VIC-20 initially. And so we'd go there and kind of type away at them. And if there were any games, we would play them. Eventually, I convinced my parents to get me a computer. So I got the VIC-20. And then several years later, I got the Commodore 64. And I just started tinkering with it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I bought kind of computer magazines, started typing in little programs and seeing what would happen. But I was really fascinated by these. But I really thought of it as a toy and just something really fun. Uh, And especially the playing games was something that was really attractive to me and, and kind of my brothers. And then it was really in high school that I started thinking that, you know, maybe I could have a career around this thing. It was in high school that I started to learn more about how to program. And I actually sold my first program, which then let me buy my first PC. After that, I studied computer science at the university in uh, Stockholm. And I focused on mathematics and algorithms within the computer science degree. And I was really fascinated by those aspects. My initial thought was to kind of go deep into academia and just spend more time in that world. But kind of halfway through my my college degree, I did my military service in Sweden. So I went up to northern Sweden, which is up at the Arctic Circle, and I spent about 18 months there. And then when I came back, I just felt very different about what I wanted to do. I was kind of excited about, you know, working in these teams and not just thinking about computers, but thinking about how can you build teams and how can you run organizations. It was really fascinating. After I graduated, I ended up starting two companies in Sweden, eventually moved to the U.S. to get my MBA. And then my plan was to work at Microsoft for a small number of years and then come back to Sweden. But I moved out to Seattle. I loved the city. I met my wife. We ended up having two kids. And I've been living in Seattle ever since. I left Microsoft after about seven years. I joined a smaller company called Marchex here in Seattle and became the chief product officer there. And then about four years ago, I joined Convoy as the chief product officer and have been with Convoy ever since. So so I'm curious, that first program you you sold in high school to buy your your first PC, what did it do? Yeah, it was um, the school I went to had, like any other school, kind of a parent-teacher scheduling problem, which is you have all these teachers, they want to speak to specific parents, and you'd have these giant gaps in the, in the schedule. And the principal, who I got to know a little bit, came to me and said, like, hey, is this something you think you can solve with computers? And 
you know, my sense was like, well, I don't know, but let's try it. And so together with a friend, he built the front end of the software, uh, kind of the UI piece. And then I built the algorithms for the software. We started tuning this thing and we started measuring effectively how few gaps could we have in, in any schedule? How much could we reduce the amount of wasted time for parents and teachers? And computers just do those kind of problems really well. And so we could run was a very naive algorithm. It took a long time to run this thing. It didn't happen in a minute, but it didn't need to happen in a minute. I mean, you have, you know, a month to plan these things. And so it could run for like a day and then come up with a highly optimized schedule. And so that was the first thing we built and the school really liked it. And they want to buy the software from us, which they did. And then we sold it to a couple of other schools as well. And that was enough to let me buy my first PC. And at that point I was starting to think, I can actually build a business around this. Uh, up until that point, I'd done random other jobs, like worked at the post office and delivered mail. But this was the first thing where I felt like I'm actually using some skill and not just kind of brute labor to make money and build a business. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So talk to me about how you got into product management. Yeah, I, I didn't know that there was something called product management, uh, even though I had been doing product management for a very long time. What happened was that as I was graduating from my program in Sweden, the computer science degree, I recognized that I had this really strong interest that wasn't confined just to technology problems. Uh, a good friend had introduced me to Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. And that was like a very enlightening book about like, oh, this is how markets work. This is how products get adopted. A bunch of frameworks to think about you know, market evolution and customers. And so I got really interested. I started reading a lot of books, and a lot of literature about how businesses work. And I was also really fascinated by computers and technology. And so I felt like I wanted to do both of those things. And I had some offers to join in pure kind of programming roles in Stockholm. At, at that point, there was a lot of focus on telecom technology. Ericsson was headquartered in Stockholm. Nokia had a large headquarter there. Microsoft had set up an office, Intel, etc. So there's a lot of kind of telecom activity. But the roles that I had access to and the ones that I thought about were I could come in there and help work on a telecom switch and write software for those. Interesting, but I felt like it would miss certain dimensions of what I thought was really the kind of problems I wanted to work on. And so I actually ended up together with a couple of classmates uh, starting my own company instead. And so as the CEO of that company, I was effectively also the chief product officer. I did everything from together with a team, figuring out where we're, what we were going to build, what our value proposition was going to be, to at that point kind of coding and building some of the underlying systems. And so for the next about seven years in two companies, I effectively operated as CEO and chief product officer. But it wasn't until after moving to the U.S. and joining Microsoft that I eventually had the title of uh, product manager. Yeah, talk to me about your, your time in product management at Microsoft. What was it like doing product management at Microsoft and what did you learn there? Yeah, it's my perspective on Microsoft was maybe somewhat unique. Growing up in Sweden, you know, you grew up with all this American culture, even though you were on a completely different continent. As you grew up with American movies, but working in technology, you also grew up with this view of all this unbelievable innovation is coming out of the U.S., and in particular, the West Coast of the, of the U.S. And so I, read, I remember reading this book called Microsoft Secrets by Kuzumano, 
early on and just being fascinated by this company that really thought about long-term strategy, thought about platforms, thought about networks, thought about all these things way in advance of many other companies. And I felt like there was a deeper thinking about markets and technology at Microsoft than the companies that I was surrounded by in, in Stockholm. And I also wondered, you know, why were all these great companies being built in the US, but in, in Europe, we had amazing companies, but they were generally of an older generation, kind of industrial companies, hardware companies, but not really the pioneering software companies. And so I had this real longing to go, go to the US, figure out what the magic is that's happening there, and then come back to Sweden, and then build a great company in Sweden. And so when I joined, I just learned a huge amount of things uh, working at Microsoft over those years. The first one was obviously the scale that Microsoft operates at. There are pieces of software technology being built at Microsoft with you know, multi-year roadmaps and visions and you know, 10,000 people working on these things. The way you need to orchestrate and think about that ends up being obviously completely different than working on working in a startup in Sweden. So that was very illuminating. The other things I found fascinating was that there was just certain thought processes at Microsoft that were quite different. The first was, and I heard this very early on, I don't know if it was actually formalized or if it was kind of mythology, but the view was that if you're going to pitch an idea at Microsoft and it doesn't have the potential to be at least a billion dollar business, then it's probably not interesting. So there was that view of like, go after the biggest problems out there and kind of be bold. And so I had the opportunity to pitch and have several of my ideas funded, including getting into mobile search, uh, which is now obviously a very large business for Microsoft. And then the final thing is Microsoft very much thinks in systems. It thinks about how do all the pieces fit together to create a better customer experience. And the obvious benefits are products like Microsoft Office, that work very well together. But there were also some downsides to that, which I observed. For example, sometimes there were decisions that were really good for customers, but they were slowed down or difficult to implement because they might hurt an existing product inside of Microsoft's portfolio. So those are kind of all the things I thought about as I worked at Microsoft. I was trying to figure out how does the system work and like what things do I want to take with me as I start building my own teams elsewhere. Yeah, so what did you take with you? I definitely took away the thinking big parts. It's one of our values at Convoy is think big. Uh, we kind of hire for it and we kind of challenge our teams to look out you know, multiple years and think about how can you actually start from first principles and kind of change an industry. That's kind of what Convoy was founded on. And then I think the other thing that I've definitely brought with me is being able to trade off thinking in systems and kind of thinking about how everything comes together, but also thinking about how can we release value to customers very quickly on and how to make those trade-offs. Because I've been on both sides of those, you know, running my own startups where you have to ship like every day, every week to your customers. But then at Microsoft, which has the luxury of making these, you know, multi-year bets because they see a big trend coming. And so seeing both of those sides, I think has been very helpful. Yeah, so, so tell me more about Convoy. What is Convoy? What exciting problems are you solving there? Yeah, so I've been with Convoy for about four years. I first heard about Convoy about five years ago. So a year before I joined, as Convoy was just about to be founded, 
I talked to Dan, Dan Lewis, who's the CEO of Convoy. We knew each other from Microsoft. We'd worked on kind of peer teams and I really liked some of the work he had done. And so we just stayed in touch and we'd become friends. And so we met in a coffee shop here in Seattle. And I remember coming back from that meeting uh, incredibly excited and talking to my wife and saying, you know, all the different ideas that people have pitched me over the years, this one was by far the most compelling one. And what Dan's idea was, was that there is this market in the U.S. that maybe you don't think about as much as if you're in tech, which is the trucking market, moving goods between different businesses. It's a giant industry. It's about a trillion dollars each year in the U.S. is spent on trucking. But the thing that's interesting about it is that you can look at different industries and think about whether technology is going to change this industry by thinking about one what is the current level of adoption? And so right now, even today in trucking, a large part of trucking is done over phone calls, emails, even faxes. And then you think on the other side, inherently are the core problems in this industry, are they technology problems? And so you look at trucking, it's ultimately a lot of classic computer science and data science problems. It's about, you have a job from A to B, which is the right truck to match it to? That's a classic relevance problem. But now you have a truck in point B, how do you get them back to A, maybe through a couple of other cities? That's a classic optimization and routing problem. So you look at trucking and you say, fundamentally, this looks like a data science and computer science problem, but it's run on pen and paper and faxes. And so that gap, I've never seen a gap that big in an industry between what the problem actually is and how it's being solved. And the result of that giant gap is that the industries run incredibly inefficiently. So one example of that is 35% of all the miles done by trucks are empty. There's nothing in those trucks. So you look at the highway, 35% of the time when you're looking at a truck on the highway, it's transporting air. And that obviously is leading to a bunch of pollution, a bunch of waste, and also much higher costs. And so that, that was the problem we were going after with Convoy, which is how can we build a marketplace that brings together all the shippers that want to move things with all the truck drivers, and then we use technology to match this and drive out all this waste in industry. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, like one third of trucks you see out there are empty at any time on the, the highway. Yeah, it's crazy. And it has this huge environmental impact those empty miles are equivalent to about, if you could remove those, it would be equivalent to removing about 15 million passenger vehicles off the roads, like just taking them off the road and not having them move. And so my wife and I, you know, we're personally invested in a bunch of environmental causes. You know, we donate causes. My younger son is really into birding. And so this kind of the mission of Convoy really appeals to me that I can do things that I'm really interested in from kind of an intellectual standpoint, but it also does things which I think are important and kind of motivating for me personally. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, when, when you first think about it, when I first heard about it, I wasn't thinking about how there's a really strong mission behind Convoy in being better for the environment, right? You wouldn't think about it until you dug into the problem that you're solving. Yeah, and, and you think about these problems and, you know, the, the thing that was fascinating to me was they look like textbook computer science and data science problems. Like if yeah. you study computer science in year two or year three, 
you start studying like the traveling salesman problem. Yeah, I was going to say that traveling salesman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like classic optimization. And you know, when I worked at Microsoft, I worked on relevance problems. Like, how do you figure out? You know, I, I have this content. How do I figure out who to map it to? That's the same kind of problem we work on here, which is I have this job. How do you figure out which truck is going to be interested in them? Well, you know, we know where they've driven historically. We know how many hours they're allowed to drive kind of legally for the rest of the day. We know what other things they have on their schedule so we can create better routes. It just looks like computer science. Like, why do we have people doing this with pen and paper? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great example of how technology can make an, an industry more efficient. And not only does that have benefits from a, you know, a profitability standpoint for the companies involved, but it has this huge environmental impact that that overriding mission that I'm sure is is something that's inspiring to the people that come to work at Convoy. Yeah, I think some people come to work for the mission. I'm definitely in that camp. But I'd also say we have some of the most fascinating data science and computer science problems. We have a fairly large data science team. And part of that is driven by the fact that, yeah, we have all these optimization, we have relevance, we also run auctions, we have all these auction design problems. There are lots of kind of economic problems. And so it's also... Like it, it works for me in both ways, both the kind of problems I love working on, but also the kind of value side of what I look for in, in my yeah, work. So tell me about the teams you oversee as chief product officer. Yeah. So the, the chief product officer title is, I think, maybe a slightly newer title. And so it means different things at different companies. Currently at Convoy, I'm running the product management, program management, data science and design teams. We work very closely with engineering. We effectively function as one team, but engineering reports into my peer. At prior companies, I've also managed engineering teams. Awesome. Yeah, it is really interesting to see how people think of the role of the the chief product officer, whether design fits in the product organization, you know, similar to the data science team. Where does that end up fitting in the organization? How companies are organized, especially around product, tends to, to vary a good bit, you know. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that these different functions, you know, data science, engineering, product, design, etc., the reporting structure can vary across different companies. But if it doesn't feel like one team, then I think it all falls apart. Like if you get these conversations which are, hey, we did our part of the process, but, you know, this other partner team, they didn't carry their part of the load that's when it falls apart. And that can happen, I think, either if you have it all reporting into one person or if you have somewhat kind of bifurcated uh, reporting structure. You know, in, in this case, it's somewhat fortuitous that my peer, Tim, who runs the engineering team, he lives in the same neighborhood as I on here in Seattle. And so when we were in the office and we kind of worked together for almost three years before the pandemic, you know, we would walk home, you know, three out of five days a week. And so that definitely let us stay really connected. And I think that helped foster a sense of like, hey, we're really operating one team, even though the reporting might be uh, into two different people. Yeah, I think it's important then to, to talk a little bit about collaboration, right? Because to focus on that one team, you have to have that strength of collaboration between data science, product design, product management, product development teams. How do you keep them all aligned? And, and how do they keep in sync and inform each other? Yeah, I think it comes down to how you organize the work, how you set goals. And then the third dimension, which I think we're 
figuring out, but it used to play a bigger role, is just like physical space, which is if you put people close together in a physical space, it just tends to lead to people working better together for, you know, for some magical reason. People think about reporting structure, I think, a lot as, you know, who's your manager, but equally powerful to reporting structure is, I think, how you organize space. And so that obviously needs to be rethought now in terms of everybody working from home. There is no direct physical space. But the mechanisms we have that have worked well for us are that we create these small teams, we call them pods, and the pods are cross-functional, and they consist of a mix of the disciplines depending on the problem they're solving. So if they're solving problems that have more operation, uh, kind of operational research type problems, we, we might have more data scientists. Or if it's more a front end, there might be more designers. But the teams are made up of people with the right skill sets, and they kind of work together with shared goals. And up front, we ask them to define their mission and hypothesis. Here's the thing they believe is going to happen. And then here's how we're going to measure whether they are successful or not. And then the success is really driven by that team. You can't be successful in that team if you did a great job in one function, but the overall team failed. It's kind of like its own startup within a company. And then we run a planning process every quarter. The teams produce a retro on what happened and what they learned, and then what are the bets they're going to go make over the next quarter. Those, of course, we don't expect them to stick to that plan over the quarter, but that discipline of like reflecting on what happened, both from an output perspective, but also from like a culture perspective, what things worked well, what things didn't work well, has helped us kind of tune this model of uh, how we run the teams and kind of keep them closely and connected and very collaborative. So let's talk about that decision-making framework for product teams. What's a framework you like? What do you use? Does it work well for experimentation and risk assessment? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of different frameworks uh, we use. I'll talk about some that have been relevant to us recently and that we've spent some time on. So one is there is this classic framework, which is how do you prioritize what you're going to build? That's obviously one of the most important functions of a product team. And so people tend to use a flavor of, you know, value, effort, and risk. Those tend to be the normal parameters that people weigh in their evaluation, meaning you want to pick things that have really high value and low effort, ideally, and then you somewhat discount that based on how confident are you that that's actually going to work out or not. That's a really interesting framework, but the thing we've been pushing on is that there are some issues with that framework, which is the way that most people think about the effort is, okay, how many days or weeks or sprints do you need to develop and ship this idea? The reality is that software often looks like an iceberg, which is you have the initial cost of developing the software, but then underneath the service, depending on what you're building, you can have huge future costs. And Sometimes you don't know because you only see the surface part. Sometimes under the surface, there's really nothing, but sometimes there's huge future costs. And so the thing that I challenge the teams on are, what are the things that you've built that delivered the value you expected, but now you have this kind of compounding effort that you have to put in every sprint because it's adding some kind of complexity that you have to consider. Every time you build a feature, this thing you've built interacts with everything else and it adds a tax to all our future development. So that's a framework where I think the classic framework is correct. 
kind of the value effort risk framework. But I think effort is often misunderstood and underestimated. And it's worth thinking about, are there some things that gave you the value you wanted, but now in retrospect, understanding the effort that's required to maintain this, you probably should rip this out of your code base, even though it's delivering some kind of value. So that's an interesting one. Another one that I think is really interesting that you know we've been pushing on a lot internally is that companies have missions, but then sometimes the missions are aspirational or more longer term. And so the way that you really goal people around metrics, right? That, that's very common. And there's some incredible things about how product management has changed over the years, where in the past you'd ship features and you wouldn't really know if they worked. Now you ship features and you can experiment and you can understand, you can collect lots and lots of data about what's going on. That is an incredible revolution, but what's happened is it's created teams that are highly oriented around metrics, right? They know what the mission of the company is, but this quarter, here's the number I'm trying to hit. And so if you take an example from like a, popular company, if you take Facebook, for example, Facebook's mission is to bring people together to build community or to bring the world closer together. Okay, that's their mission. But then the metrics they use are things like monthly active users and engagement levels. And you can imagine that there's a gap between those two things. The things you would do to bring the world closer together might be different than the things you would do to increase mouths or the things you would do to increase the number of page views. And so there's a very interesting question that arises, which is what are the things that are not getting done because of this gap between your mission and metrics? And similarly, what are the things that we're at risk of doing because you're optimizing for the metric and not the mission? And I think this is inevitable in every product organization because it's oftentimes very difficult to know if you're actually achieving your mission because it is longer term. In the case of Convoy, we're driving towards reducing emissions, reducing empty miles. But there's, there's some challenges in measuring that because we don't understand always the counterfactual for the truck drivers. We don't always understand what would they otherwise have done if they hadn't taken the job with Convoy. So we have to make estimates of that. And so sometimes those metrics end up being approximations. So that's another framework. And I think that's another important question for product teams to ask, which is, what is this gap between mission and metrics? And what is that causing the organization to do inadvertently? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting digging into that Facebook example, right? When you think about the idea of what can drive more daily users, more engagement, often comes to things like outrage, right? Outrage drives clicks, it drives engagement, it drives talk. And that's exactly counter to where their mission is of bringing communities closer together, but hits those short-term metrics. For sure, but I bet you that people were incredibly well-intentioned when they first came up with those metrics, which is, okay, how do we bring yeah, the world absolutely. together? We need more people on our platform because otherwise, how do we bring people together? And we need to engage them, like communication fosters. You can imagine a theory that says more communication fosters better understanding, right? But you can also imagine all the ways that, no, actually, that doesn't happen at all. There are all these other ways that more communication, if it's the wrong communication, actually drives the opposite, kind of more separation of understanding, more kind of echo chambers. But I think that's an important one for product teams to dig into, which is what is this gap and what is it driving and kind of reevaluate that. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a profound thing for people to think about because there's often a strong mission. There's often strong short-term metrics. A lot of companies do not have kind of the, the process for bridging that gap, whether those are, you know, metrics that roll up at a higher level, whether that's estimations, whether that's, uh, you know, general direction. I feel like there's a lot of thought that product managers could put in there. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time on trying to get the metrics right. And, you know, I'll just acknowledge that they're never going to be perfect. They're Generally, they end up being estimations of what we want to accomplish. But then once we have those metrics, then we generally let the teams kind of run and be highly independent. Mm-hmm. And so I spend more of my energy, I would say, on are we pointed in the right direction? If we succeed, will it accrue to the company and our mission? And then less, I would say, on the specific roadmap, what are the choices you're making? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, just thinking to now Pendo, you know, I think it gives me some things to think about there too, of like how to bridge that gap between the short-term metrics and the long-term vision and making sure we're actually tracking to that in some way that it makes sense. I like that. I, you know, definitely something for us all to think about. How does innovation fit into the frameworks and your approaches? Yeah, we've taken an approach that kind of starts in the values of the company. So when we hire One of the things we interview for, reward, try to reinforce is this value, which is think big, uh, which is being able to think beyond the current boundaries of industries and willing to kind of push beyond what's happened before. So we look for people that have this strong vision, but also people that have a strong desire for autonomy. And there are lots of people of those, especially in product management those characteristics tend to come together, people that have a lot of ideas, but they also just want to run. So as I mentioned, once we have these people, we spend a lot of time on like alignment, which is like, okay, let's make sure that we know where we're going and let's make sure that we can measure success. And then we think about how to place bets. And the way we place bets tends to be, we look at how much people think they can accomplish in the future. So in this quarterly cycle, we ask them to estimate, okay, here's the thing you're going for. How much progress do you think you can make in the next three months, six months, 12 months? And we understand that those are estimations. But then we also combine that with looking backwards, which is historically, how often do these teams kind of hit the goals they want? And so that lets us kind of manage the portfolio of, you know, we have all these people that are, that have the vision, that have the drive, but we have to decide how to do resource allocation and where to place bets. And so we're looking for predictors of future impact. And so we use both their estimates and what's happening in the past. And then we basically let the teams run and give them a lot of freedom to take risks, experiment, learn. And, you know, I, I think at one point at my last company, somebody asked me, you know, why can't our product and engineering team, why can't all the experiments succeed? It feels like, some of your experiments are failing. Can't we just hire better people that, that come up with experiments that have a hundred percent success rate? You know, why don't, why don't we just find better people? And I think that uh, if we're doing that, then obviously we're not taking on enough risks. And so we also try to showcase like, here are some things we made bets on and failed and kind of showcase those. And oftentimes it should lead you to understand something about the product or the category that you didn't understand before, because there was a hypothesis that if we do this thing, it should lead to this outcome. Now we have a completely different outcome. 
And it's not just that the experiment failed, but it's your model of how the system works should ideally be updated, which is like, okay, there is something missing in our understanding. What is that? And how can that inform the next set of bets? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when people look for just positive experiments, they aren't learning enough about how their industry works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's important. I mean, especially when you, if you have a, a CEO or a boss who might not be a strong product person to make sure they have that frame of reference of why you're experimenting. You know, it's, it's to guide the overall direction. It's not going to be that everything should be a learning, but it's not going to be that everything is successful, so to speak. But those learnings make you successful in the long, long run. It, it saves you money. It makes you more efficient. It guides your direction. Yeah, and ideally also saves you from product bloat. Like historically, everything you shipped went into the product. Now, ideally, you should be looking at a bunch of features and saying, okay, maybe it's adding some value. If it's negative value, it's pretty easy. The ones that are a little bit tricky is it seems to be adding some moderate amount of value. Should you keep it or not? I think people often forget the ongoing costs, and so they tend to keep them. But ideally, you should have like hard trade-off conversations also after you ship things where you know, I'm getting half the value I expected. Is that still worth keeping given the additional complexity adds? But yeah, that wasn't... I think it's definitely true. People underestimate, like you talked about before, when you're talking about your frameworks, you know, level of effort isn't just the level of effort to launch something. It's the level of effort to support something. It's the added complexity it adds. It's the added complexity you have in launching new things because of it. It's the added complexity your users have in, in learning the software if they're new. Uh, it's all of those things that kind of add, are additive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about trucking, right? You're transforming the trucking industry. What's it like to introduce digital transformation to them? It's a really, really super fascinating experience. Up until this point, I've really worked only in pure tech. I've worked on search engines, ad serving, browsing technology, mapping engines. This is the first time where I get to work on taking technology and bringing that into a real world industry. And trucking is, as I mentioned, gigantic. It's a trillion dollars in the US alone. It's over a hundred years old. And so there's a lot of existing players. They've done a lot of smart things over the years. But what that has led to is there's a lot of process. There are a lot of things that you now have to build products and you have to fit into. The thing you have to trade off is if you just come into a large established industry saying, hey, we're a tech company, we're going to do everything differently, you're going to get rejection of your value proposition. So you have to balance to what part do you fit into the way the industry works and to what extent do you bring new approaches to the industry. The fascinating thing about trucking is that it was only about five years ago that a company like Convoy could even be built. And the thing that's enabled Convoy to be built is the advent of the smartphone, which prior to that, every truck was essentially analog. I mean, you had to make phone calls to them or you had to send paper or faxes. Now you have a very powerful computer with a data plan connected to the internet in every single truck. And so once you have that, you now have this computing platform on which you can innovate. So there are a bunch of industries that probably look similar to trucking where the mobile phone has essentially made that industry as a 
kind of a digital platform that you can now build software on where it wasn't possible. And so that's, that's what we're trying to do. What we found is that it's, you can't just convince people and say, look, trucking is ready for technology. That's not going to work. And so when I joined, what I found is that many of the leading industry players, they would say phrases like, technology doesn't move trucks, people move trucks. And there is some truth to that, which is there are relationships. And, you know, people talking to each other can sometimes solve problems that are difficult for computers to solve. But it's also true, and this is kind of how we looked at it, which is fundamentally, many of the most important and most expensive problems are classic computer science and data science problems. And so we've been working on some of them. One of the most important ones we worked on was to what extent can we match trucks to jobs without needing to hire a large internal staff at Convoy that kind of does the phone calls and does the brokering of this work. And, you know, we heard that it was largely impossible to do. And so that really motivated a team. So we had one of these pods within Convoy called the Marketplace pod. This was one of the main things they were working on. This is one of the main metrics they were thinking about, which is, can we actually build an automated marketplace where we don't have humans doing the matching in between, but it's actually a bunch of systems and algorithms. And we heard for multiple years that it just wasn't going to be possible. But at some point, our metrics were so strong internally, we had achieved you know, more than 90% match rate where everybody in the industry was saying, you know, you're never going to get past 10 or 20%. And we knew internally that that wasn't true. And so finally, early 2019, we kind of shared publicly that we had a 95% match rate. And I think it surprised everybody in the industry that that was actually possible. And we've been close to that for multiple years. And I think it's shifted the industry. I think people now with some announcements like that, are recognizing that technology has come to trucking. There is a point at which you can resist, but I think there is a point at which technology is going to be part of this industry. People are going to be part of this industry as well, but there are certain problems that technology just solves a lot better. And so now we're hearing those same companies announce that they are, you know, they are also technology companies and they're announcing kind of big technology initiatives, which is super gratifying and I think is some validation. The other problem that we solved that was very, very interesting and very important was one that directly relates to our mission, which is this problem of reducing empty miles. So for the first couple years of Convoy, we were doing matching with one shipment at a time. Like we find a truck, we try to understand as much as possible about what's going to be relevant to them. And then we find them jobs and pair those together. What we found out is once we had sufficient density in our network, we could now string together multiple jobs, you know, two, three, four jobs at a time. And when we did that, we ended up reducing the number of empty miles because our computers could search through, you know, if you just think about it, if you have a thousand jobs and we have far in excess of that, but even with a thousand jobs, if you try to string together three jobs in a row, you're already talking about a billion different permutations that you have to evaluate, right? And so just not a human solvable problem, but very easy for computers to go run that in a couple minutes and figure out what are the best combinations of jobs to put together. And so now I think a couple of years in, the trucking industry is much more of a technology industry, at least in a belief system, but it's going to take many, many more years to 
transform a lot of the processes, a lot of the ways that the industry has operated and kind of change the culture of the industry. But it, it is definitely happening in a very big way right now. Awesome. You know, we, we talk about the future and how things are changing. You can definitely see how technology is becoming part of, you know, a lot of these old industry, older industries, or even the industries themselves describing themselves as technology companies, as opposed to, you know, trucking companies or financial services companies. It makes me think that, you know, the best technology wins, so to speak, in a lot of industries moving forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Some of these industries are, I think, still on the verge of figuring out how they're going to transform. Like healthcare, I think, is one of those that you look at it and you say, there should be better ways of operating here. And now you read about AI being really effective in diagnosing and detecting cancer and kind of other diseases. And so you can kind of see some of this technology starting to come into these industries. Education would be another one. And I I put transportation like right up there as kind of the giant industries. I think it'll be interesting to see if the other ones are going to tip in the same way. Certainly both healthcare and education, it seems like there's pressure now with COVID. People are trying, you know, telehealth. Obviously, you know, our kids are at home doing classes over Zoom. Uh, I don't know if it's perfect, but I think, you know, that pressure on the system will drive a bunch of accelerated innovation. So I think this move towards technology has been happening over multiple years, but really COVID is putting pressure on some of the biggest ones to change at a much different pace than I think otherwise would have been natural. Yeah, it makes me think too about like, you know, you talk about big bets, looking at big industries. How do do you help your product managers look out that far into the future? Like if you're talking about industries that are going to change, whether it's trucking or it's healthcare, you know, a lot of these things are, are changes that you know, start now, but are going to, you know, reach the realization, you know, five to 10 years out. How, how do you help product managers think about their products 10 years out? Yeah. So it's one of my favorite interview questions is let's talk about something you've thought deeply about. And I want to hear your vision about what's going to change over the next five to 10 years. And so people sometimes pick an area they've been thinking about, which might be like, we've been talking about education and technology One person talked about if there's a war between AI and humans, how's that going to play out? And it's not necessarily that I'm expecting people to know all the answers, but I think that ability to think out a couple years, project out and say, under ideal conditions, how would I want to organize this category, this product? What could be really different is very powerful. And at different times in Convoy, we've had the discussion about, okay, we think that you know, step 10 of this problem looks like this. Very, very different from how it looks today. Because as I mentioned, you kind of have to operate within the current parameters of how the industry works, but you still have this vision that looks very, very different as you go further out. But that leads you to have this discussion of, should we go build step one or should we target step five on the way? And then you have conversations about, okay, well, how confident are we in the timing? Because if you get the timing wrong with products, that's almost as important as being right about the feature in the first place. If, if the timing is off, it doesn't matter. There's so many companies or products that have been right, but just gotten the timing wrong. But you start having these conversations about what are the bets we should make? What are the things we should skip over? And so we interview for that. And then we end up having, I think, a lot of people on our team that 
really kind of push out and say, what does it look like? What could it look like? What steps should we skip? And that, that ends up being a very important part of the planning process and the vision process. Well, thanks, Syed. I think you've given us a, a lot to think about today as we're kind of getting to the end of uh, the podcast or our time together today. I wanted to turn this to a couple questions about you. So what's your favorite product? I have many products that I love, but one that comes to mind is Wikipedia. And the thing I love about Wikipedia is just, if you looked at the internet when Wikipedia was founded and you look at all this chaos, I think that clarity of thinking that somehow you can harness all that wild, crazy energy, all these opinions, and actually produce something that is useful and coherent, I think that is incredible. I think that is one of the boldest visions in product that has actually come to life. It would be very easy to say, this is going to look like the YouTube comment section. That's what you're going to get. You're going to ask somebody about you know, politics in the United States. It's going to look like YouTube comments, and it's going to be completely incoherent and just be nonsensical. And so I think figuring out how do you have that vision and then how do you build the system and the mechanisms underneath to kind of harness the kind of collective energy, passion, disagreement, knowledge of the internet and actually produce something that is unbelievably useful is incredible. So I'm always amazed when I browse Wikipedia that the internet together with some visionaries has been able to produce that product. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is amazing. And it also makes me think better of the world of the internet, so to speak. <laughs> parts of it at least. Yes. Parts of it. So one final question for you today, uh, three words to describe yourself. Okay. Yeah. This was really hard. So I was kind of thinking about it and then I asked my wife what she thought about the words I came up with. So I came up with, calm and curious. And my wife said, you sound like an infant. That's how people describe babies. And so I added competitive as well, which hopefully <laughs> doesn't sound like a baby. But yeah, those would be my three words. You know, I mean, maybe product managers are like infants, uh, or at least young children, because I, I do hear a lot of curious, right? I, I think that's a, a great personality characteristic for a product leader to have. And I think it's important. I think when you think about leaders in general, I mean, you don't look to leaders that are not calm, right? I mean, I think being a good leader in some part is being calm in the, in the face of challenges and adversity. So I, I would think those are, those are two solid things. And you know, one of the ones we also hear, in addition to competitive or ambitious or driven, right, which you could see in a lot of leader characteristics and product leaders in particular, is empathetic, which is also something I think of with little kids. I mean, you think of some of the, the most empathetic people, especially, you know, family members, the little kids are like, oh, did you hurt yourself? Are you okay? Can I kiss it and make it better? You know, that, that empathy also comes across in little children and in product managers. So maybe there's something to be said for uh, product managers continuing to have those early childhood characteristics carry forward later in life. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, that's a great point. I actually worried about it because I think as many kids, you kind of grow up with all these things you love and then you kind of look at adults and then you wonder about whether when you become an adult, are you still allowed to go do those things? And so, <laughs> You know, for me, I loved comic books. I actually collect comic books. And so I, I kind of saw the 
kind of adults, they don't really, they didn't really read comic books when I was growing up. But now we live in this era where Marvel at the box office has some of the best movies or at least the most popular movies every year. So I get to like continue being, you know, the things I really love, I get to see on the uh, kind of the big screen. And then similarly, you know, playing with computers, I feel, I just feel super fortunate that many of the things I loved as a kid, I've been able to continue to experience as an adult. And the nice thing is it also overlaps with the things my kids love. And so we go to movies together and they are amazed that I know, you know, the first appearance of every superhero on which comic book they showed up in. But yeah, I, I love, yeah. So maybe there is some of that childish. Yeah, uh, I think it's awesome. I mean, I hope we can always keep a little bit of our, our childlike enthusiasm with us. So thank you. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.